0: Seventy years, To my 26-year-old naivete, 70 years feels like forever. Well, maybe not quite forever, but it seems to me like a really long time in the context of my life. During a person's life, Canadian copyright law protects their work for their entire life and 70 years from the end of the calendar year when they die. After that time, copyright protection for that person expires. And their work becomes accessible, adaptable, and attainable through the public domain. But this type of law doesn't account for the ongoing knowledge shared by Indigenous communities and leaves Indigenous communities' intellectual property vulnerable to appropriation and exploitation. I'm Sid Clausen-Roseworn, and you're listening to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. This episode focuses on Indigenous intellectual property, and you're listening to part one of two episodes on this topic. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to appreciate the land we work on and the people we work with. This podcast is produced across the ancestral indigenous territories, now referred to as Treaty 7. The Canadian Mountain Podcast acknowledges the land where we work on as the home to the Nitsitipi, Iahe Nakota, Sutna, and Métis peoples. As journalists and media makers involved in Indigenous knowledge mobilization, the collective responsibility of our podcasts is to strengthen our relationship with Indigenous peoples through storytelling and partnerships. You might be wondering why we're talking about intellectual property on a podcast about mountain research and braiding knowledges. One of the things that we've come to understand when working on this podcast is that ownership of information and control of distribution of that information is essential to working responsibly with knowledge holders. Historically, there is a tradition of both researchers and media makers extracting information from Indigenous peoples, taking that knowledge and publishing it which means the researcher now holds copyright, not the communities. In order to truly work respectfully with indigenous knowledge about mountains or otherwise, we all need to look at how Canada's laws around intellectual property and how it affects how the information is controlled and who is benefiting from it. In this two-part series, Kyle Napier and Saad Iqbal explain their current research project, which investigates Canada's intellectual property laws In this first episode, Kyle and Saad explain intellectual property, traditional knowledge, and how these systems often come into conflict because of their differing views around information and ownership. Kyle is Dene Nihio Métis from Fort Smith Northwest Territories. He is a university instructor specializing in indigenous language revitalization, social policy and law communications and technology, and intellectual property. He is also a doctoral student at the University of Alberta in Educational Policy Studies. He is also one of the senior producers for the Canadian Mountain podcast. Saad is a master architect and an international PhD student at the University of Alberta in Human Geography. He works alongside Kyle on research around Indigenous intellectual property and copyright and is also part of the podcast team in a research capacity. As both of you probably know, one of the practices with the Canadian Mountain Podcast is to introduce ourselves um, and take the first moment of our interview to talk about the land. So why don't we just take this opportunity, you can tell me about yourself, where you're working, and your connection to the land that you're on.
1: Um, I'm from Tepecha, uh, or Fort Smith Northwest Territories, or really tepecha uh, denende Um So I'm um, below the rapids in um, Denende's hair, where the giant fell from the stars. And today I'm living in Quechon, or Edmonton, the big city, as we call it from up north in my language. And so the lands that I'm situated on now are not as boreal as what I'm used to. And so there are a lot of strange plants that I did not grow up around. And uh, and so it, it the lands that I'm on now, um, it definitely feels away from home. <laughs> and... Maybe talking about that, I think Saad might have some similar reflections.
2: My name is Saad. I'm an international student from Pakistan. I am currently completing a master's in education from the University of Alberta. The city I belong to in Pakistan is called Lahore. It's a beautiful, vibrant city with a lot of historical context. My current residence here in Canada is in the city of Edmonton. I am exploring a lot of um, beauties uh, in the city. Edmonton is a really different city from as compared to Pakistan. Uh, a little bit about my work is that I'm working on indigenous knowledge and indi- indigenous research methodologies. In fact, I just completed my capping stone exercise, which was about um, the experience of uh, me engaging with indigenous knowledge and indigenous research methodologies. And uh, in my capping stone, I have talked to fellow international students like myself, uh, where I have tried to inspire and motivate uh, international students to learn more about Indigenous histories and Indigenous communities, uh, to get an idea about whose lands uh, we are all on. And uh, it's just one of my research areas. Uh, Some of the other research areas that I have been involved in is understanding the importance of Indigenous uh, land-based knowledge to tackle climate change and environmental issues. And uh, yeah, that's just about it.
0: I guess a really key important part to establish for this particular episode is what is Indigenous intellectual property?
1: So what's really interesting about Indigenous intellectual property is that there are so many different definitions. So to ask what is Indigenous intellectual property, um, you're, you're going to get thousands of different answers. So... There are global definitions, I mean, from the World Intellectual Property Organization or, um, I mean, the Canadian government, but I think it's more critical to understand what is Indigenous intellectual property from varying Indigenous communities, and the answer is going to be very different from each community. So some might be more protective of some knowledges, while others would be um, more sharing. Um, Some knowledges are up to commercialization, while the others are much more private uh, and sacred. And so the scope of indigenous intellectual property and the criticalities of uh, the importance of IP uh, go beyond, um, I mean, go beyond definitioning um, and more into the abstraction of uh, of of skills of of, you know land as we started in this episode and ancestral relation. And so, in the same way that uh, Saad's focus has been around ecological. Um, remediation and land connection um, indigenous intellectual property is necessarily sourced from the land in such a way that all knowledge all language the worldview this is all land based and so indigenous intellectual property is is um, goes from everything to understanding um, stars earth ecological stewardship the Engineering behind a canoe, the different means of making um, moccasins or clothing, how you prepare foods, Um, the uh, all of this is bound within a particular layer that Canadian um, IP and copyright fails to recognize, which is protocol. And so, um, protocol in terms of definitioning from the Canadian government and from and from. Um, you know, we, we in Canada we're subject to the USMCA, which is the Patriot Act, okay? And and that means that anyone who has um, is deemed as a threat uh, at, at, at a level of terrorism um, is is their knowledge is subject to um, vulnerabilities. So any digitized knowledge is subject to vulnerabilities through the Patriot Act, which means land defenders, um, those who are um, pursuing ecological stewardship, those defending, let's say, Wet'suwet'en or um, Standing Rock or any type of um, larger land defense um, participatory protest uh, deems someone's digital uh, knowledges or digital recordings, recordings of their ancestors, any work that they're working on. I'm a, I'm a grad student right at a doctoral level, and so if I go to a land defense protest, any interviews that I've done um, because of the USMCA or anything that I go to, if I particularly if I'm in the states, um, becomes vulnerable. Anything that we store digitally, let's say on servers um, in the states. Dropbox, Zoom, Google Drive—these are all on American servers, and these are all subject to vulnerabilities due to the Patriot Act. So, when we consider Indigenous intellectual property, I mean, yes, there's the digitized knowledge, but there's—and which we will get to in this episode—but there are also um, non-digitized knowledges, and that's where we get into spaces of oration. Um, so like I said, there's multiple definitions. We'll get into like, as, as Saad will address, um, you know, the Canadian government defines TK and TCE, right? Traditional knowledge or traditional cultural expressions. But if you go to community, what, what they would define as, as um, these types of knowledges aren't uh, traditional in the sense that um, this is a tradition or it's a past tense um, implication, but rather it's ancestral, ancestral knowledges, meaning there's a, there's a futurism, um, there's a futuri- futuring of these knowledges rather than a condemnation to the past. Um, so that all said, when when these um, definitions that Sod's about to review through WIPO or the Canadian government, when they um, when they put forward these definitions, I, uh, it's really important to consider also what's missing and where are these vulnerabilities.
2: I really like the futuristic part because this is this is basically what uh, we've been talking about a little bit as well. Is that when you when you say traditional knowledge, it it might you know give a connotation of it being a, a thing of the past, but uh, you know indigenous knowledge, indigenous ways of knowing and being, they're all evolving, ever evolving. They're like living um, structures that have been transferred intergenerationally, but are also evolving. You know, as we as as we go on, the government of Canada says that the traditional knowledge is the know-how. Um, skills, innovations, and practices that are developed by Indigenous peoples related to biodiversity, agriculture, health, and craftsmanship. Whereas traditional cultural expressions are defined by the Government of Canada as the tangible and intangible forms in which t- uh, traditional knowledge and culture are expressed in and may include oral stories, artwork, handicrafts, dances, fabrics, songs, or ceremonies. We are also talking about intangible forms and intangible aspects, you know. Uh, so when we talk about intellectual property um, and traditional knowledge, uh, there are certainly some uh, things that we need to be more understanding of. So for example, how does one protect a song or a ceremony? Or, you know, how does one uh, protect things that have been transferred orally? You know, uh, I think uh, somewhere along our talk today, we will discuss a little bit about, uh, you know, the intangible aspects of uh, uh, traditional uh, cultural expressions of the indigenous people and traditional knowledge. Um, But uh, to give you a more overview of an international perspective, um, the World Intellectual Property Office um, defines uh, traditional knowledge as the creations of the mind, such as inventions, literary and artistic works, designs and symbols, names and images used in commerce. If we look at the definition by the Intellectual Property Office of the New Zealand, they have these seven categories uh, in which geographical indications are also included. So similarly, when we look at intellectual property definitions, uh, like Kyle has already uh, explained, it depends on who you're asking and how you're asking, right? So uh, there is one definition that really uh, makes a lot more sense in a way is the uh, intellectual property how it's defined by the office of new zealand uh, the intellectual property office of new zealand they recognize seven types of intellectual property uh, uh, in relation to the maori knowledge and they include trademarks patents designs copyright plant variety rights geographical indications as well as trade secrets so like explained by Kyle, you there's like a lot of ways which uh, it, through which we can define, um, you know, uh, traditional knowledge or traditional cultural expressions, as well as what an intellectual property might look like. Uh, but as we go along uh, in our today's conversation, I think we will probably unfold more meaning out of these things. Thank you.
0: Could you tell me a bit about how Indigenous concepts of truth might differ from Western conventions around what truth is?
1: Yes, For, and first I'd like to challenge even the the term western um because there's a there's an implication with the word western that it refers to North America when in fact it's it's western Europe and the colonial onto epistemological erasure of knowledge on this continent because of even the the notion of an assumptive practice of of thinking that western applies to this continent when in fact it's a foreign concept. And so I would, I would con- contrast Indigenous concepts of truth with settler colonial conventions of truth and that is a great question. So um, settler colonial conventions of truth seek objectivism um, and they claim to pursue through a positivistic inquiry some type of formal standard, singular agreed upon truth and that I would say, um, based on the languages used in settler colonial conventions of pursuing truth is quite limited by um, the language and educational infrastructure which seems to validate those structures of truth, so quite with like with um the pluralities of knowledges within indigenous. Um, intellectual property systems and intellectual systems and protocol systems and spiritual systems is that um, with regards to truth um, Even just looking at the number of languages in the world, which is an around 7,000 that each language um, contains within it a worldview and considering the number of indigenous languages on this continent and globally um, and each which is at risk of that hegemonization because of a universe, an assumption of a universality of truth is that um, I would say that indigenous pursuits of truth and how one comes to validate uh, knowledge and to validate um, epistemologically what is um what is again yeah knowledge or truth or what is an education and and uh what is intellectuality what is what is something that needs to be defined by intellectual property um so i would say that settler colonial conventions of truth assume a singularity or assume a singular answer whereas um within the many different um indigenous means of understanding the world is that uh they're, they're. is necessarily plurality, and how we access truth can be quite different. It can be um, through the animals, or through our own dreams and dreamscapes, or um, through visitation with the elders, rather than whether something is, is published or not. And all too often, published knowledge is incorrect.
0: Kind of now, what I wanted to get into is a bit of like how Indigenous intellectual property interacts with like the copyright law in Canada and. On the Government of Canada's website, they have a link to grant applications for the Indigenous Intellectual Property Program, links to varying resources about um, IP, and it also reads the relationship between IP and the protection of Indigenous knowledge and cultural expressions is complex and challenging. Would you explain a little bit about the Government of Canada's response to how Canada has treated Indigenous knowledge systems?
1: Yes, and I, I would draw anyone, as, as you're saying, Sid, there's great literature on the topic. And so um, the late Gregory Younging wrote about narratus nullius, which is the, the vulnerabilities of um, Indigenous knowledges through uh, Canadian um, intellectual property frameworks, whether it's, as Saad's saying, um, through plant breeder's rights or copyright or trademark or um, patent or trade secrets or as as um Saad's research has alluded to is a geographical and regional representation and so you know as, as you're seeing sid canada has realized okay since 1492 so as with then terra nullius said that those on this continent that were not um indoctrinated into the religion of the day uh those were not people if they if people did not believe in God, they were not people. And so, um, indigenous, the millions of indigenous peoples on this continent and and globally, which were subject to colonization were subject because of terra nullius, right? A papal doctrine, which said, you know, if they're not Christians, they're not people and therefore their land is subject to colonization. So, Gregory Younging makes a great point about narratus nullius, right? So um, instead of nobody's land, the con- concept behind the papal doctrine of terra nullius, narratus nullius would be the governmental doctrine um, within IP, which again fails to adequately protect, and I, and I would argue it's a violation of the treaty because Canadian copyright law has been applied to Indigenous nations in a paternalistic approach, um, which we as members of our own nations did not sign up for right the treaties did not make us participant to the government of canada's intellectual property frameworks but because of what gregory younging is saying because our own nations um and communities and languages don't have um uh intellectual property laws what we have is protocol and violations of protocol come with fairly deep spiritual consequences and sometimes to the point of death right let's say a violation of intellectual property around plants um, where somebody is told, uh, you know, this plant will save your life, and then they go to such a plant and they misidentify it, and they end up killing themselves or another person, and that has happened. Um, you know, there's, there's deep consequences. So, so anyway, in response to your question, is that there's 500 years of extraction of these types of knowledges, and whether it's through academia, um, contemporarily through media, or previously through um, <laughs> survival by settler colonists, right? and so um so these different avenues into access of indigenous knowledges but now um because of the inadequacies of actual protections um and the disrespect to protocol to these knowledges um that means that it's already uh, i would argue you know 500 years too late or at least the birth of Canada in 1867 so you know 50 more more than 50 years uh, uh, since Canada's rule so I would say it's too little and too late. Um, it's important that they are um, putting uh, dollars on the table for Indigenous nations to develop their own IP um, frameworks, and I'm really interested in um, what those causal reactions will be from such nations. So, for instance, in the 90s, there was the uh, transnational uh, Lakota-Dakota-Nakota Declaration of War Against Appropriators of Indigenous Spirituality, and and that isn't necessarily a transnational um, declaration of war. Um, and it's transnational because that bifurcation between the northern and southern half of this continent is a colonial imposition. And so that forced um, separation between uh, Lakota, Nakota and Dakota peoples. And so um, I would say that, you know, the government of Canada might have a response to um, where they're encouraging different indigenous nations to develop their own IP um, frameworks and systems and I agree Um, but I also agree that sometimes policy is not enough and that's why we see examples like the declaration of war against appropriators.
2: When we talk about or when we begin to think or talk about how indigenous people have been treated um, it also brings in a lot of discomfort for, for a lot of people, it, it brings uh, it, you know, it begs us to to be uncomfortable, to be, um, you know, to be in those uncomfortable truth and reconciliation processes that we have to do both individually as well as, as um, you know, at a community level. While a lot of people might be ready to have those kind of talks or have those kind of thoughts, uh, it might be complex and challenging for a few to to begin thinking about how Indigenous people in Canada have been um you know exploit how their lands have been exploited or how their ways of knowing and being have been exploited um and i've seen some of those conversations happening in the academia for example is that when we talk about uh these experiences uh we have to be uh, we have to be dis- uh, discomforted in in a lot of ways and so it becomes challenging um in a way also
0: so if you go onto the government of canada's website and look at the copyright laws, Canada's copyright laws are exceptionally far-reaching when it comes to colonial institutions um, or digital media, but have very few protections for Indigenous intellectual property. How do Canada's copyright laws fall short in protecting Indigenous IP as they exist right now?
2: So before I begin to answer this question, I want, to, um, I want to mention that it is really important for us to understand that for indigenous peoples, um, knowledge is not considered something that can be separated from the community. And uh, therefore the individual relationships and responsibilities are also a part of this uh, separation, uh, which means that an object, uh, whether it's tangible or intangible, meaning if it's a physical entity or an intangible object, it holds no meaning, Um, you know, it holds no meanings outside of that relationship. And uh, this comes from uh, young Inc. Batista and uh, young blood. And uh, another thing that we need to understand is that indigenous claims, uh, you know, they challenge the individualistic approach of intellectual property rights. And uh, they rather focus on the collective role of the whole group in the creative process, Uh, which means that uh, according to Helfer and Austin, Uh, It means that uh, acknowledging the contributions of all individuals, you know, uh, that have, uh, uh, you know, made their contributions over generations. There are definitely a lot of uh, gaps in the formal IP systems uh, to effectively protect indigenous knowledge and cultural expressions. For example, the government of Canada explains that we have a lot of, um, you know, specific laws in Canada to protect IP. Uh, You know, these are Patent Acts, Copyright Act, the Trademarks Act. Industrial Design Act, as well as the Plant Breeders uh, Rights Acts, But these mechanisms are designed on protecting the rights of individual creators and uh, innovators over their creations, innovations, which exist in physical formats, right? So when we talk about indigenous intellectual property, uh, something that we did talk about a little bit before as well, the formal IP systems that we have in place, they do not necessarily protect the collectively owned traditional knowledge as well as uh, traditional cultural expressions, uh, which have been transferred intergenerationally. And another thing to mention here is also about, since a lot of indigenous knowledge is transferred orally, uh, we may not see them uh, you know, in the form of a paper, or we may not see them in the form of a protected uh, entity that you, can, uh, that you can see, right? So uh, a lot of this knowledge being tradi- uh, being transferred traditionally in oral formats Makes it really, really difficult and obviously vulnerable to exploitation, and um, yeah. So these are just some of the reasons why our formal IP protection systems um, do not necessarily protect indigenous knowledge and traditional cultural expressions against exploitation. Well, there are you
1: know advocates for open intellectual property. There are also advocates for private and sensitive um, treatments of intellectual property, and depending on on. Um, I mean, really, Canada's IP's, IP laws really favor um, corporations, right? We're borrowing from American legislation here. And so um, can, I would argue that Canada's laws, as with America's, are not necessarily exceptionally far-reaching. But in terms of um, community uh, intellectual property, as you and, and Saad had mentioned, that is, and, and collective um ownership and rights to knowledge, that is when there are issues and and um, when IP frameworks within the USMCA fail to really truly acknowledge um, and respect uh, and adequately protect, protect those knowledges. I would say there are other shortcomings also um, with protocol. So again, that's the gap that um, Canadian intellectual property frameworks do not acknowledge, is that the role of... of um, is that of the role of protocol within community. So there are digital content management systems such as Makutu or or Enriched Through Local Contexts, which suggests that there are um, protocols within community. So whether you have gone through, let's say, a rite of passage ceremony or whether you have um, spent time growing up on the land or you are connected to a certain community or whether there is snow on the ground or whether you... Um, are a language speaker or not. These are different elements of of protocol. And so I would say there are global um, licensing tools such as um, with local contexts from Enrich or or Makutu, which is an indigenous developed CMS for managing and licensing um, digital heritages. And we'll get to this later. Um, So protocol is, is is a shortcoming of indigenous intellectual property frameworks within Canada. I would say so is the length of copyright. So 70 plus years after that, such recorded or documented knowledges then flow into the public domain so we have recordings now that were done in like the 1920s or so from the smithsonian institute um in which indigenous communities and knowledge holders were um were recorded uh singing and now those songs are in the public domain meaning anybody anywhere in the world can do anything they want with um that uh such recorded knowledges uh the same is true with uh collected knowledges about plant medicine, and that puts um, plants uh, up to vulnerability to biopiracy and bioprospecting, bio-harvesting, and ultimately um, extraction and exploitation of uh, of the vulnerabilities of such knowledges. I would say that there needs to be a pivotal change um, within Indigenous intellectual property frameworks across the continent uh, that regard rematriation rematriation, and reattribution so GLAMs galleries, libraries, archives and museums um, are the possessors uh, often of TCEs so of tangible traditional cultural expressions such as weave work or clothing or drums or recordings or any number of, of things that a gallery library, archive or museum would be in possession of And so um, we're starting to see, you know, just droplets of change across the world um, regarding rematriation and reattribution. I would say, let's say, you know, somebody goes into an Indigenous community and starts taking photos of knowledge keepers, well, the person who retains the copyright of such a photo or recording is the person doing the photographing or the recording. And so people like journalists or media makers become the de facto. To copyright holders of traditional knowledge because of the um, frameworks that we exist in today. And I would say there's another issue with inheritance of knowledges. So right, these knowledges, knowledge systems are 10,000 years old, and if somebody is recorded saying something, well, the death of the author of that recording plus 70 years means that knowledge then becomes globally exploitable. And so it's not only an inheritance system of death and then the flow into the public domain, but also then who are the de facto inheritance of the recordings between the death and 70 years. And so often it's family, often it's, it's family giving it to museums or GLAMs or whichever. And, uh, and then there are specific conditions over how those knowledges should be treated then. So there's no uniform system for that. It's on a case by case basis and it's, not in favor of um, indigenous knowledge. Sorry, transgenerational indigenous knowledge means of passing on.
2: You know the Intellectual Property Institute of Canada. Um, they recognize uh, three fundamental issues with our, uh, you know, formal traditional IP systems, and we've talked a lot about collective ownership rights. But uh, s- to connect with what Kyle has just said. Um, we also find the Western IP systems to be ineffective in protecting historical works and expressions. So, what happens to, you know, what happens to the historical works or traditional expressions that have, uh, been, uh, you know, um, intergenerationally transferred, but were not, but IP systems or intellectual property systems were not in place at that time. You know, for for them to be protected, right? So, there are definitely historical works that are coming, uh, from thousands of years ago, right? So so there's that, and then um, again, from the uh, Intellectual Property Institute of Canada, uh, we need to understand that there's a a perpetuality and timelessness of traditional knowledge and uh, traditional cultural expressions when we talk about indigenous knowledge systems and indigenous ways of knowing and being. So if you remove that, uh, you know, the character of, uh, you know, the timeless character and the perpetuality part then uh, the Western intellectual property rights, uh, uh, intellectual property systems would not essentially be, um, you know, able to effectively uh, protect Indigenous knowledge systems from exploitation.
0: One of the realities of, of non-Indigenous folks exploiting Indigenous science is damage to the land, like you're mentioning. And one example of this happening right now, which has different names depending on the Indigenous community, but there's growing concern that this medicinal fungus that's been sustainably harvested by Indigenous communities is now being commercially overharvested and exploited. What needs to happen at this point to right this situation?
1: It very much comes down to um, corporate and capitalistic participation um, to access these types of uh, of superfoods. Um, the superfood of the week. And each one then has its own global ecological uh, consequence so as with the as with avocados as with coffee beans as with rice um, when these types of foods are then globally commercialized and put on the conveyor belt of larger economic systems well they start to begin to lose their connection to the lands upon which they are ancestrally grown and so with chaga it's almost like we, as Indigenous communities, which have this ancestral relation with Chaga, we have a treaty with the plant. And the way that we harvest the plant would be quite different than somebody who um, comes from a community wherein they don't have um, these types of you know non-human treaties and non-human protocols and non-human intellectual property responsibilities, rather than rights, right? I mean, we consider the difference between responsibility and right. So, yes, there are many health benefits to the chaga, but ultimately that's a secret that was let out of the bag. And now we see um, a lot on supermarket shelves and overpriced and even now resold uh, in Indigenous communities on the shelves. without. So, you know, what's interesting here is that, you know, you sent me an example, Sid, and I know Saad has an example where... There were global partnerships between corporations and indigenous communities to maintain marketing and capitalism and the selling of uh, and, the harv- and the harvesting and the processing and all of this that goes into putting something from the land onto a, onto a, a supermarket shelf. And within that, there's not an emphasis on, again, the, the treaty made by the community. Um, and the plant and what goes into um, you know when if someone let's say drops tobacco or um, or, or participates in, in protocol and reciprocity with the plant. Um, rather it's it's a monetized relationship. And, uh, and I would say with that there's a lot of um, loss in the spiritual benefits of not only chaga Chaga is just one example of, of so many. Um, different plants which have been uh, um, commercialized, over-harvested. And then, you know, we in our treaty with chaga, let's say, um, it's not just with the trees and maintaining, you know, birch survival, but also um, the ecosystems which best allow for um, birch to thrive, for instance. So, um, the full ecological respect and not just, you know, as we see with tree farms, not just tons of birch in a row and, and a, a disrespect of, of the fungus inside of them.
2: I think it all boils down to, you know, the ill effects of commercialization. I think that's what Kyle's been trying to say. So when we, when we look at, you know, uh, uh the, the, the impacts of commercialization, um, that's what it's doing to to nature and to the environment. And this is, this all comes down to, you know, having detrimental effects on our environment as well. When you talk, when you talk about, you know, exploiting resources, um, you know, without any bounds. So based on my my research, uh, I was really, uh, you know, I was really inspired to read more onto it. And uh, as I, uh, you know, dig deeper, I came to understand that indigenous communities, you know, they've always had very profound very reciprocal relationship with the nature right and 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 with the environment and land so whatever they take they also give back to it you know and 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 they do so not just to uh they don't do it for exploitation they don't do it for over uh production they always do it for what little is needed at a given time you know to 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 sustain life right so it's not based on commercialization it's not based on you know, duplication. It's not based on, uh, marketing it, right? So, uh, with that said, um, uh, thank you for giving one example and thank you for explaining it, Kyle. There's, uh, there's another example that I was talking, uh, thinking to talk about, which is about the hudia species, the Hoodia plant, which is again the houdia name itself is a, uh, you know, and um, a scientific name given to the plant. Uh, but this is a study by Capapiso and Higgs, which discusses about hudia plant and. Um, you know, the indigenous knowledge that exists in the San people, which is a, uh, an indigenous community in South Africa. So uh, the Hoodia plant uh, contains an active chemical component called P57, and it is believed that uh, this compound can, uh, you know, it contains appetite-suppressing uh, properties. And so to You know, in order to uh, develop slimming drugs for commercialization uh, uh, processes, um, there has been a lot of research that has been conducted uh, first by the South Africa's Council for Scientific and Industrial Research Center, but then also by really big pharmaceutical companies um, um, uh, that we have in place. The problem with this uh, is that pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies, they work to commercialize pharmaceutical products. Right? and they, they do so by identifying or extracting compounds from plants that have been identified by indigenous communities you know indigenous peoples um, many many years ago and uh, what happens through this system is that uh, these companies these pharmaceutical companies and uh, biotechnology firms they uh, they apply and they they get patents uh, you know to secure the intellectual property rights uh, and what it does is that, the indigenous communities' knowledge systems are suppressed when you get a patent over their uh, traditional knowledge systems. The problem is intensified because a lot of, um, in a lot of ways, indigenous knowledge is seldom recorded on paper, like we discussed before. So the scientific experimentations and the manipulations uh, of the indigenous knowledge, uh, you know, it's given precedence over intellectual property laws. Um, what it does is that. Um, Indigenous knowledge systems are undermined, and in a in, you know in some cases uh, there are also restrictions put on indigenous peoples' claims, you know claiming rights, um, and to derive commercial benefits for themselves, you know for their own use and for their own needs. So um, in, in this particular study that I am um, mentioning by Capapiso and Higgs, they derive three assumptions uh, based on indigenous knowledge system uh, that it could be misappropriated, it could be locked in time and space and therefore be misinterpreted, right? And uh, what they learned from their study is that the practice of biopiracy of indigenous resources leads to the erasure of indigenous knowledge. It leads to the erasure of indigenous knowledge and also cultural relevance and significance. So in a lot of ways indigenous knowledge is uh, you know, still being undermined or being suppressed by these big pharmaceutical companies which are overexploiting, use of uh, indigenous medicine and plants or indigenous medicinal knowledge systems that have existed for you know centuries and have been transferred intergenerationally but their claiming rights do not fall under the um, existing intellectual property rights to effectively protect indigenous claims you know over their knowledge and the use of uh, indigenous medicinal plants
0: That was Kyle Napier and Saad Iqbal, both researchers and doctoral students at the University of Alberta, discussing their research on how Canadian intellectual property laws can better serve traditional knowledge holders. During our conversation, Kyle and Saad shared some noteworthy findings. For one, there is no singular definition of indigenous intellectual property. The answer will change based on the community because intellectual property looks different from community to community Each group needs sovereignty over how to protect and share their knowledge. Arbitrary laws and legislation won't work across the board for every group. It's also important to understand that settler colonialist conventions of truth differ from indigenous notions of truth. While settler conventions of truth assume singularity, with many indigenous ways of understanding the world, there is a plurality of thinking where truth can exist differently. That's it for this edition of the Canadian Mountain Podcast in partnership with the Community Podcast Initiative at Mount Royal University. Keep an eye out for the second part of this conversation, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Sid clausen Roseworn, host and producer of this episode. And thank you to Kyle Napier and Meg Wilcox for guidance. The Canadian Mountain Podcast is produced from Treaty 7, with the goal of bringing together indigenous knowledges with settler research and sciences through this shared platform. We are committed to collaborating with indigenous peoples in respect of the contributions of indigenous voices and knowledge holders. We are actively learning to decolonize our production practices through this series and encourage other media professionals and organizations to decolonize their practices as well. Be sure to join us again for more stories surrounding mountain places, whether that be in your own backyard or from around the country. Share and subscribe to get the latest updates and be sure to tell your mountain loving friends and colleagues. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can learn more about the Canadian Mountain Network at CanadianMountainNetwork.ca.